God, I pray now that you would help us by your spirit to be attentive to you and to your scriptures. God, I pray that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. God, if I say anything that isn't from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. I pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the priests here at Truro. I am so thankful to have been able to spend much of the last eight weeks away on a sabbatical. And while it wouldn't be completely honest to say that I'm glad to be back, I mean, part of me definitely still wishes I was hiking in the mountains or sitting by a lake. My boys, they start school tomorrow, and so here we are. And it is indeed wonderful to be back here amongst our church family. Although I must confess, I'm a little bit more nervous than I usually am. So here we go. Now this morning we're going to continue in the Gospel of Luke. So if you brought a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it to Luke chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along and the Bible's in your pews. You can find this morning's passage, which is the narrow door on page 873. Now, our passage this morning is centered around Jesus' response to a question. And I want to get to the question as soon as possible, but first I need to make a quick comment about our opening verse, verse 22. It's, It's a transitional verse. It connects what came before with what comes after, and it makes note of a scene change. Look with me at this, verse 22. Luke writes that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Jesus is continuing to teach, but the location is what I want to highlight before we get to the question. If you have your own Bible this morning, or even if it's a pew Bible, that's fine. I'd like you to underline journeying towards Jerusalem because this is important. In both Luke and Mark, a change in Jesus's ministry is noted about halfway through following Jesus's transfiguration, which is where I believe we picked up the Gospel of Luke back in June. At this point, both Mark and Luke note that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. His teachings, they get more challenging. Jesus ups the ante a bit. You want to be a disciple, he seems to be saying? This is what it looks like. It becomes clear that Jesus, the Messiah, is heading towards his death. And so anytime you see Luke say or Mark say that Jesus continued journeying towards Jerusalem, what Luke is doing is reminding us that the way of Jesus is the way of death. It's the way of winning by losing, of giving yourself away for the sake of others. Jesus' way is the way of suffering. It's the way of service. That's the way that Jesus walks, that he calls those who follow him to walk as well. Every time Luke mentions that Jesus continued towards Jerusalem, Luke's reminding us of the cross. Now it's along this way, the way towards Jerusalem, where Jesus would be crowned king with a crown of thorns and elevated to his position by way of a cross that someone, we're not told who, asks Jesus the question that we see in verse 23. He he says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? This 
is the question. The fact that this question is asked at all implies that there was some debate around this, as there is today, and that Jesus' prior teaching may have given the impression that perhaps salvation wasn't as wide as many may have previously thought. The subtext of the question, though, is what are my chances of getting in? Or, or perhaps even more, the subtext is, what are the chances that so-and-so person gets in or doesn't get in? It seems we always want to know where we stand and where those around us stand. And we especially want to know where we stand in relation to those around us. We want to know if we've done enough or if our neighbors or family members or coworkers have done enough or not done enough. Jesus responds as he so often does indirectly without really answering the question. Instead, Jesus personalizes the question and in doing so, he removes some of the abstraction from it. One commentary noted that instead of answering the question generally about people, instead, Jesus replies with direct advice for the one who asked the question. Jesus doesn't tell his audience who's in or who's out. He doesn't tell us how we might know who's in or who's out, at least not here. He doesn't tell us here what it takes to be in or out. And, and frankly, these things ought not to be too much of a concern for us. We, we don't get to decide or control who's in or who's out. Nor do we get to decide or control what it takes to be saved. All of that belongs to God and God alone. Instead, Jesus responds in a way that not only personalizes the question, but gives back control to us, the things over which we actually have control, namely how we walk. Friends, if God is God, this is the one thing in life that in fact we do control. We control how we walk. Jesus is essentially saying, stop worrying so much about who's in and who's out. Instead, pay some attention to how you're walking. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We'll see that Jesus is going to get at the same truth from three different angles. And in doing so, he's going to challenge us to move away from a half-hearted faith into something deeper and richer. So if you have your Bible or if you're the note-taking type, I'd like you to circle or write down these three Words, all right? First, in verse 24, the word strive. Then in verse 25, the word shut. The word shut. And lastly, in verse 27, the word no. The word no. First, strive. This is what Jesus says. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, I must confess, at first reading, I found myself asking, so is Jesus saying I ought to work really, really hard in order to get into heaven? I thought the Bible says that it's only by grace we can be saved, not through works. It, it seems like Jesus is maybe contradicting Paul here. Like, how, what are we supposed to do with that? And, and it does. It does seem to be a contradiction. So let's unpack a bit what Jesus might mean when he says to strive. If it's okay with you, I'd love to kind of go Bible nerd just for a second, Okay. The Greek word here for strive is agonizomai, which shares a root with our word agony, okay? It's used a total of eight times in the Old Testament. Luke uses it once, John uses it once, and what do you know? The Apostle Paul uses this word a whopping six times. 
The very man who wrote so extensively about how works cannot save us wrote again and again and again about the importance of striving. He writes about striving to draw the lost to Christ and striving in prayer in Colossians. He writes of being trained in godliness and fighting the good fight of faith. That's the same word, agonizomai, in 1 Timothy. And then he writes about having fought the good fight of faith, again, the same word, this time in the past tense, in 2 Timothy. He writes about the importance of Christians to be disciplined, like an athlete, when it comes to matters of faith. Each and every time Paul uses the word strive, or that's translated strive here, he's speaking of the struggle of faith, the discipline of faith, the the hard and serious training necessary for a holy life with God. The apostle who wrote so eloquently about how it is by grace we are saved through faith and this not by works is saying, you've been saved, now train. It's like this. Every year, the NFL draft comes and goes and, and teenagers, really, um, early 20-somethings are chosen by their teams and they're paid extravagant uh, sign-on bonuses to play football, right? Jesus doesn't want us to be like one of those NFL draft picks who is chosen, and then once receiving a sign-on bonus, slacks off and shows up to preseason out of shape. Every year, there's a couple guys like this in the NFL or in the NBA. They're drafted, and they are given, and they're handed a couple million dollars, and they spend that off-season eating wings, hanging out with their friends, buying new cars, going out to the club late at night. And every year, there's a handful of stories about draft picks who are paid tens of millions of dollars and aren't ready to go. Jesus does not want us to be like that. Drafted, chosen, saved, and then flabby in our spiritual life on a diet of wings and late-night clubbing. Jesus is exhorting us to struggle to enter the narrow door, to to wrestle, to really work at our life with God, to fight the good fight of faith, to be disciplined, even if it means a bit of agony, which it will, because as verse 22 reminds us, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Here's maybe how I would put it. Salvation is free, but it's not easy. And it's certainly not cheap. Jesus shows us this himself when he goes to a cross instead of just waving his hand or something. There aren't shortcuts or quick fixes or magical pills if you want to be a disciple. There's a cost, discipline required, and it might hurt a bit at times. It's so easy for us to mistake free for easy, to think of our spiritual life like a magic diet pill and the hottest new exercise machine that promises to shrink your belly and get you in shape without having to do any hard work at all. But any athlete will tell you that discipline is required. I've gotten into and fallen out of good shape enough times to know that getting in shape is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It hurts, especially at first. It's got to be a priority. There aren't shortcuts. You'll have to wake up early and work out when you're sore and when you don't feel like it. You'll have to be disciplined with how you eat and how you sleep and how you use your time. And the spiritual life is no different. You want to be a disciple? You want 
a life of intimacy with God, a full, rich life with him and his kingdom, it's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take some prioritizing. You'll have to work at it, strive for it. Discipline is required if you want to be a disciple. Discipline is required if you want to be a disciple. First, strive. Second, shut. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus goes on to say, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Eight days ago, Jenny and the boys and I were in Yoho National Park in the Canadian Rockies near Banff. This is why I can say, I, I mean, it's wonderful to be back with you. Part of me still wishes I was in the Canadian Rockies. Now, last Saturday, eight days ago, we left early in the morning to hike a trail called the Ice Line Trail. Now, the Ice Line Trail starts near the second highest waterfall in Canada, and so there's a very crowded parking lot. Lots of people get there to see this waterfall, like a couple hundred yards to see it. To hike the Ice Line Trail, you park at the same parking lot, you hike half a mile, you cross a road, and then you begin a ridge climb. We climb for a couple miles and a couple thousand feet of elevation gain up a ridge, and then you hike along the ridge with this waterfall across the valley the whole time. And eventually, you ride that ridge and you come to a glacier and the glacier lakes that exist at elevation beyond. It was a magnificent hike. Now, I've done an awful lot of hiking, both out west and here on the east coast. And one of the things you learn, especially out west at elevation, is that you have to start early. You have to start early. You have to start early because the trails are often more challenging than you might expect and because hiking at 8,000 feet is more work than hiking at 2,000 feet. But even more than that, you have to start early because in the afternoon, oftentimes, thunderstorms roll in. Some of you know this, right? And if you're caught on an exposed ridge at 8,000 feet in a thunderstorm, things can get awfully scary, awfully quick. We knew this, and so we started hiking at 7 a.m. We, we climbed the ridge up and up and up and up. We made it to the glacier and the accompanying glacier-fed lakes by lunchtime. And we ate our lunch. Now, at that point, we were about five miles in. We'd gained nearly 3,000 feet. We weren't at the point yet where most people turn around. In fact, we saw a steady stream of people continuing past us towards the lakes beyond. But we could tell that our five-year-old's legs were starting to get a little bit tired. We also saw some clouds back in the distance. And so we decided to play it safe, even though the forecast said no chance of rain. We decided to play it safe and turn around and start heading back along the ridge towards the tree line. As we were going down, we passed group after group after group starting their hikes. And sure enough, just as we reached the safety of the tree line, it started raining. 30 minutes later, we heard our first peal of thunder. We made it safely back to the valley floor as the storm opened up and as thunder and lightning hit the ridge. And I found myself wondering about all those hikers up on the ridge still, miles from a tree line in the safety of the valley floor. 
found myself wondering about all those hikers who had started their hikes at 9 or 10 or 11 in the morning, putting off an early start for the sake of an extra hour of sleep or a leisurely breakfast, and in doing so, likely found themselves wet and cold at best, and likely in a very scary situation. Too often, we act like those hikers in our relationship with God. We put off for later what we should start right now. We don't consider the afternoon thunderstorm, and so we don't live our spiritual lives with any sense of urgency. But what Jesus is saying here in verse 25 is that our spiritual lives should have a sense of urgency. The door will be shut. It's not open forever. We tell ourselves we'll read our Bible tomorrow or we'll give a bit more money after we get that raise or we'll share our faith after we've built a little bit more trust or we'll forgive those who've hurt us after a little bit more time has passed. But waiting too long to start is foolish and it's potentially dangerous. And friends, Jesus wants what's best for us. He wants us to be within the safety of the ridgeline and so he warns us in verse 25, the door will be shut. Get moving. The truth is, at best, the longer you wait, the harder it will be to get started. So friends, when it comes to following Jesus, don't dawdle. Get moving right away. Disciples, don't wait for later or for tomorrow because it seems easier or more convenient. Instead, make a decision to get up early and start today. Get your nose back in your Bible. Spend that moment praying, even if it's just to say thank you. Share your faith with the neighbor. Give with sacrificial generosity. Forgive, even when it's hard. Because there is a time when the master will get up and shut the door. And there will be those left on the outside. So don't delay. There ought to be a sense of spiritual urgency, of urgency to your spiritual life. This stuff matters. There isn't time to waste. Third, no. Verse 26, Jesus goes on to say, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But the master will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Okay. Proximity to Jesus isn't enough. Or to translate it for us today, the narrow way of Jesus requires more than showing up to church on Sunday. Sitting in these pews alone will not make you a disciple. Looking the part won't find you in the kingdom of God. That's the subtext of verses 26 and 27. There are all these people sitting and listening to Jesus. Maybe they've even been following him for a while. They've eaten with him. They've seen the miracles. They've been there. And he wants them to know that that alone won't make them a disciple. Knowing some stuff about God is not the same as knowing God. Knowing some stuff about God is not the same as knowing God. Sitting in church on Sunday isn't the same as being known by God. And that's the key here in verses 26 and 27. We were there, we were with you, they say, but I do not know you, the master responds. Proximity isn't enough. Casual relationship isn't enough. Jesus is urging his listeners to leave behind a superficial spirituality 
in favor of real intimacy, to trade in something surface level for something real, where one knows and is known. Any real relationship takes some work, some wrestling, some commitment, some time, but oh, it is worth it. And God wants to know us and be known by us. There's a cost to it. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, especially in the short term, of course. It takes vulnerability and commitment to know and be known. There's sacrifice involved. But there's also a cost to a spirituality devoid of discipline. There's a cost to a lackadaisical faith with no urgency. There's a cost to a spiritual life where you're kind of around, but you don't actually know God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are cast out. This is about as real a warning as it gets. Jesus is quite explicit. Hell is real. And if you don't know Jesus, you'll find yourself on the outside looking into the kingdom of God. Passivity, when it comes to Jesus, is no less than opposition and will only lead to grief and disappointment in the end. But just as there's a warning, there's also an invitation. Jesus says in verse 29, people will come from east and west and from the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. There are many surprises in the kingdom of God. You might think you're not good enough that you don't stand a chance, but Jesus seems to be saying it's those very people who end up on the inside at the end. People will come from all corners of the earth welcomed to recline at table in the kingdom of God. Friends, the striving won't be in vain. The pursuit of an intimate relationship with God, it's not for nothing. And the end result is one of joy and intimacy and life with God for all eternity. And in the end, those who suffer and strive and seek and serve and go, even though in the short term that might look like lowliness, like being the last, will find themselves seated in the presence of God. Our passage started with someone asking Jesus how many were going to make it into the kingdom of God, and Jesus doesn't directly answer that question. Instead, he turns it right back around on us, the listeners, with a simple exhortation to control the one thing we can control, how we walk. He instructs his audience, and by extension us, to strive, right? To, to wrestle, to fight the good fight of faith. To put in the work to know God. He says that the door will be shut, and so we ought to live our lives with God with a sense of urgency, not putting off for tomorrow, a decision that we can make, a commitment that we can make today. And he exhorts us to know God and to be known. If you hear nothing else from this passage, hear this. Jesus is looking for an active faith from us. He's not looking for disciples who follow when it's convenient or easy, but he's looking for disciples who are willing to get into it with him. And friends, let me close simply by saying this. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. 
He's worth fighting the good fight of faith. He's worth committing to know today. He's worth getting to know. So do it. I invite you to stand and let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the, the way that these words still speak. God, thank you for the ways that they speak to me, that you've convicted me in these words. And I do pray, God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to be the sort of people who fight the good fight of, fight of faith, who are not easily complacent. God, who struggle to know you. I pray, God, that you would give us a sense of urgency in our spiritual life to get moving. And God, I pray that we might know you, that we would be a people who know you and are known by you. We praise you, God, that all of this is possible because of what you've done in and through your son, Jesus, on the cross. And so we pray, would you send your spirit to help us to be these sorts of disciples? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.